You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. Masterclass. Hey, listen, we bring you our masterclass now. Every single Wednesday, we pick a topic. You can suggest a topic as well, by the way. And then we go and find the expert. We find the aficionado. We find the person who's done the 10,000 hours to uh, come along and give us an hour, spend an hour with us on that issue. So, listen, if you have a suggestion or something you'd like to, a topic you'd like to suggest, listen, drop me an email, azania at 702.co.za. So, today's one is a promise that we're fulfilling because our last conversation with my guest, we ended it by endeavoring to do a part two of the land conversation and um, to ensure that we expand and afford enough space to the question of women and land. So this afternoon, we're joined by lawyer, public speaker, author, and political activist. His books are Land is the, the Land is Ours and Land Matters, South Africa's Failed Land Reform, um, Reforms and the Road Ahead. So those are the two publications, but the conversation that um, we're talking about is framed around the second book, Land Matters. Um, it's important for us to understand women in relation to land or land in relation to women, I should say, because women's land rights remain one of the most important sites of social, political, and economic contestation in various parts of the world and here in South Africa. And land isn't only a source of food or employment um, and or an income. It also gives um, social prestige. It also gives access to political power um, in, in, in its own unique way. And land has long been recognized as a key, an important key to advancing the socioeconomic rights and I think the well-being of women and their position in society. However, though, access, control and ownership of land largely remains the domain of male privilege. Um, and this speaks to the patriarchal structures of power that exist in our society. So this is part of what we'll be unpacking this afternoon. And I'm going to take advantage of our time with Advocate Tembegan Mugaitobi and ask him several questions relating to the decisions that were made by the ad hoc committee um, last week. Remember, they adopted a bill to amend the constitution to allow expropriation without compensation. And we'll hopefully, if there's time, talk about land tenure um, and things like private property. So they, it'll be expensive. Good afternoon, advocates. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for um, inviting me. I'm very pleased that uh, uh, I don't know if it's you or me who fulfilled the promise. But the promise has been fulfilled. <laughs> yes, at least I'll be seen as a liar. <laughs> Someone who doesn't keep their promise. Okay. <laughs> so I'm very happy. Thank you. I think we're struggling to hear you a little bit. The levels are quite low. Um, and my technical producer so? has given you a full boost, but it's still quite distant. It's still... Uh, um I wonder, from, because from my end, I have no difficulties at all. Um, okay. Abel, you're still shaking your so, head no. Yeah, um, so still. Um, Abel, give me a sign. Yes or no? Should we take a quick break? Yeah, let's take a quick break. 702. Masterclass. 
Well, all the technical problems have uh, been sorted out and we've got Advocate Tembega Ngugaitobi with us as we look at the land question, particularly the main theme for today has to do with women and land and or land rights, I should say. So in the book Land Matters, ad- the advocate writes, patriarchal systems have displaced our memories of women roles in the struggle against land dispossession. And he tells the story of Princess Emma Sandile. Advocate, this is such a fascinating account, one woman's story, and her immense contribution to uh, the, the, the struggle for land in this country historically. And yet, this incredible contribution has been erased and remains largely unknown. Um, this speaks to how gendered the conversation around land is. Uh, yes, um Yes, that's true. Um, Just to start with Princess Emma herself. um, So she was the eldest daughter of uh, King Sandile, who was the king of the Nguyga section of the uh, Corsa. And she was born in 1842 um, in the Eastern Cape. Now, during that period, for those who are not familiar with the frontier history, this is the point at which the British colonial government um, was, I would say, at its zenith of the colonial project. It, it was the, a massive expansion of the reach of empire uh, in the Eastern Cape, essentially setting up the structures of colonial control. People like Sandile, uh, as king of the Nuka, were in the heart of the resistance, in the in the heart of the opposition, in the heart of the frontier wars. One of the strategies um, used by the British, so the, the, there was a fellow called uh, Harry Smith, uh, who was quite a, a nasty um, a fellow who just believed in wiping off of the native people. He basically engaged in a genocide um, in the Eastern Cape. He just wanted to wipe each and every, I would use a term that most most people don't like, uh, kafir. Uh, And he's actually specifically said so that uh, he wanted to wipe each and every K from the Cape to Natal. So that was his strategy. He was then replaced uh, because of the chaos of the Sixth Frontier War. He was replaced uh, from the Cape and dismissed from his position and taken back to the to, to England. And one of his successors, uh, a fellow called uh, Sir George Gray, had a different approach to how to uh, fulfill the colonial ambition. What he wanted, uh, Sir George Gray, was to assimilate uh, uh, the native people, to civilize the barbarian race. These are his words. He wanted to civilize the barbarian race uh, so that uh, European rule becomes second nature. And by civilization, he meant um, education, um, public works, and religion. Mm. It's in this context then that the story of Emma becomes a crucial story because Sir George Gray was behind the setting up of many of the uh, missionary schools in the Eastern Cape. One of his objects was that the children of native chiefs would be educated in these missionary schools and they would be the ones responsible uh, to carry out the colonial mission. They would civilize the other barbarians. Emma was crucial because as the child or the daughter, the eldest daughter of Sandile, 
she would be married. That was the plan. After school, she would be married to the chief of the Tembu. Mm. And that way, the Tembus could be brought under the colonial sphere of influence. And so she would be the conduit to the preaching of the colonial message about how brilliant the British are, how excellent the British ways, and how backward the ways of the Cossars are. And that is why she was then sent to this school. In fact, she was the first girl child to go to Zonenblom, which was a school of children of native chiefs. The, the system, as the story in the book shows, fell apart. Um, mm. uh, Emma did acquire her education, mm. but she resented uh, the colonial project and uh, actively fought against it. Mm. She's such a, a fascinating figure, even in uh, the, the other roles that she played in that struggle, in the resistance that was waged in that, uh, as you say, in the frontier uh, uh, conflicts that, that ensued. And so it's wonderful to to kind of see her and have an imagined figure. That's that's definitely what it felt like. I know that this isn't fiction, but, you know, it, it inspired some of the pleasure yeah. of reading a fictionalized heroic character. Um, and you just added layers to her and how she kept intersecting with various historical moments um, and how she managed to plead her case and indeed be a landowner and own three farms. But in speaking about women as well, you look at the history that this country has of women being made perpetual minors, always needing guardians to consent on what they can do and what they can't do with things like property and land. And you make the case that even in democratic South Africa, this hasn't been addressed adequately. You write that law, culture and economic power continue to preserve patriarchy and yet women work the land. Their legal status is subordinate to, to, to men. How has the state failed to recognize this? Um, just the, the, the failings that we have seen into this uh, democratic dispensation. Yeah, I mean, that's, yes, thank you. That's a great, great entry point. You know, the, just to start on the sort of historical angle, I mean, I know many, many people, like, they just want to know what do we do now. But the history is usually helpful to get the context right. So if you start just on the historical um, angle, uh, in another chapter in the book, uh, this the, the women's chapter is chapter 12, but in another chapter, I think it's chapter 8, uh, I deal with what I, I've titled Chiefly Power, mm -hmm. in which I try to trace the ways in which the control of chiefs uh, over the land uh, began and was reinforced by the colonial state. And the useful starting point is in the late 1800s in Natal, um, 1860 to 1878. That's the period at which there is consolidation of the uh, vision of native rule by Theophilus uh, Shepstein, uh, who was the uh, basically the colonial governor, the colonial agent. Uh, the, the title was the diplomatic agent of the natives. And hmm. that, that was one of his formal titles. But his vision was that native people would be organized into locations. That's what he wanted to achieve. He wanted to achieve this idea of putting native people into locations. These locations would report under a magistrate who in turn would report under a governor general. And the governor general would be an appointee of the British government. In fact, at the time, the Natal was controlled by the Cape. 
One of the features of that administration was to establish what is called native crawls. Now, under a crawl, by law, and this was in the statute of 1875, reinforced in another statute of 1878, by law, the head of the crawl had to be a man. And he was in full control of all the uh, inhabitants of the crawl. Mm. They were effectively treated as his property. Now, this was written in law. I quoted in full the words of the statute, which included wives and any other woman who resided inside the crawl. When the head of the crawl demised by death or by other means, they had to be replaced by another man. One of the expansive powers of the head of the crawl was the decision-making around land allocation and land usage within the crawl, which was a disruption, a major disruption of customary ways of land management, Mm. which were much more equitable. I mean, they were obviously not perfect because patriarchy was present. I mean, one should not have a romanticized view of the pre-colonial world. It had patriarchal features. But instead of being destroyed by the forces of the economy, it was reinforced and strengthened. And so that's the point I tried to make in the one section. Now, to your point, which is how have those uh, patriarchal features, in fact, the structure of the colonial government was entirely patriarchal. This this is the patriarchy that is uh, imported from Europe. To look at the current mode of land reform, so the promise, uh, which is the critical juncture in the development of the legal systems, the promise is 1994 when we have a new constitution that talks about equality, that talks about the um, transformation of the relationship between men and women. It exhorts, it creates these expectations uh, that there would be a disruption of the colonial and apartheid patriarchal systems. I mean, these are systems that have been built, developed and entrenched over 300 years, but there is a promise that they would finally be disrupted. Mm. And they set up three programs. They set up a restitution program, they set up a redistribution program, and they set up a land tenure uh, program. And there is, in fact, another document called the RDP, now, the RTP document specifically has a line that says that women should be the focus of land reform. It says they should be the focus of land reform, and that they should be at the forefront of land reform. That's the promise of the RTP document produced in 1994. Mm. If you look at the uh, restitution program, the restitution program has no gender uh, specificity whatsoever. It's supposedly gender neutral on the basis that you can claim uh, land on the basis of dispossession. And then it doesn't say, you know, you know women should be given preference. Mm. Now, the consequences have been catastrophic. Is You've had a scenario where most land is worked by women. In fact, I, I looked at the stats in preparation for today's talk. It, the stats globally, 60 to 80% of food is actually produced by women. But the access to land control of women over land is 1 to 5% actual control over land, but they are responsible for putting food on the table for 60 to 80 percent of all food that is put on the table for children to eat is actually organized by women, but their control over the land is one to five percent. So our restitution program has no gender bias and consequently it has produced a highly patriarchal outcome.
Mm-hmm. The same with our redistribution uh, program. It it claims that there should be a focus on women, but the consequences have shown that ultimately the redistribution tends to favor by 70%, 70% favors men. Yes, and as you say, even when land reform policies include uh, gender equality goals, they just tend to fade when it comes to implementation and even, as you say, you describe it as control. Um, so there is a lack of serious attention to gender equality, uh, uh, to, to gender equality, and it reinforces the uh, marginalized position of, of women. And it also undermines mainstreaming efforts to improve women's rights. Um, I think it also hampers, just broadly speaking, strategies for economic development. So how should our legislators um, handle this issue? How should they address it? Does it come down to uh, stating specifically within the law um, what should flow to women and in what kind of way? Yes, uh, yes. So the one way is obviously to say in legislation, uh, it's no longer enough. Uh, once you look at all of these programs, right. it's no longer enough to, to say that women should be given preference. That's no longer enough. What legislation should specify is that, you know, uh, uh, 51% of all allocations should go to women. In, so, in other words, something measurable mm-hmm. that is concrete and tangible. It's not enough to say that there shall be genuine effort by the state to promote the interests of women. That's what we've had for 27 years, and we've had uh, catastrophic outcomes. So so that's one way of addressing the, the, the problem. But there is another way of looking at the problem. In the chapter that we are t- talking about, I have a section there in which I deal with what I call women in Marigana. Mm-hmm. And I deliberately put that chapter there because it illustrated something else. Often when we debate the issues of women and access to land, we look at women as beneficiaries, basically waiting for handouts uh, by the state to own, control, much, uh, work the land. But that story showed me something else. Uh, the basic story for those who haven't had a chance to read it, the basic story is I was trying to understand how the men uh, who were engaged in a strike in Margana, um survived for so long and sustained the strike for so long mm-hmm. when the employer implemented the no work, no pay policy. Uh, that strike lasted for three months and the primary workers there are people that basically come from the labor sending areas. Uh, one of the big labor sending areas in this country is the former Transkei. The others come from Zululand, others come from Swaziland, but 23% of the workers who worked for Lonmin at that time came from uh, Transkei. Now, our understanding of that relationship is that the men leave the villages to the cities. And in the cities, they send remittances home. And that's the traditional way in which we understand that dynamic. But what happens when there are three months of no money? Uh, what happens to those men? How do they live? Uh, partly, they were assisted by the women in Marikana, the women they lived with. Uh, there's a fascinating article by Asanda Peña who talks of the important role that the women who serve as girlfriends, as concubines, as wives, uh, who live with these men in Marikana, some of whom have left their wives in the you know villages, but they nevertheless have this uh, social structure of support in uh, in Marikana, and that we tend to create a, a layer of invisibility around them, and yet they provide a concrete 
a support to the men in Marikan. But there is another angle to it, which we have not yet considered, which is in 2012, at the beginning of that year, a company called Whiphold began a project in the Eastern Cape with the assistance of some private sector players in which they tried to begin a project of farming in which people with cattle, people with land, and all of the land in that province, uh, well, in the former Transkai, most of the land is owned by the state because it's regarded as communal, communal land. And the way in which the banks work they don't finance communal land because you have no title. And they finance you based on your income. They look at your salary and look at whether or not you are able to pay. But they were able to append this and to bring these women into mining. And they began to produce food and to sell on a large-scale commercial basis. Now, those projects, uh, that project in particular, was able to empower those women of Marikana, in other words, the wives uh, and the girlfriends and the mothers and the daughters to actually send money, you know, into uh, Rustenberg, you know, something that is remarkable and yes. basically un- 702 Masterclass. And we're back with our guest for this Masterclass. Um, as I promised a little bit earlier on, we will dip into other topics apart from women and land. And just before we went to the headlines, Advocate was giving an account, a story of this incredible land program um, in the Eastern Cape that Whippold has implemented their great success story, which uh, we can learn a lot from. Um, but Advocate, you know, when I read your book, it's... A, it's it can often feel as though there is so much to be almost like you're trying to order an organized spaghetti, you know, which is everything's just so entangled. Um, you mentioned Theophilus Shepston a little bit earlier on and uh, the code of the Zulu war, uh, Zulu law, rather, how he went on to write this code, the law for blacks in Natal, which um, was a distortion of customary laws and just custom overall. And if we then went on to develop further layering um, these misinterpretations and so on, it sounds like we've really gotten ourselves into a hole. And then layered over that is the lack of will, the lack of uh, focus that we see or the lack of management around redistribution reform and um, restitution when it comes to, to land. So... How how does one kind of the right these 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 wrongs? And I know that your book is saying we need to ask different questions. You want to set this debate on another footing, um, but just having done the work and looking at the progress that's been made, how do we begin to address these gaps and these injustices? Yeah, I mean, just to complete the that first thought we we were having about the the, the Waypoint um, project. Mm. I mean, there are two lessons for from it. The one lesson is that um, one of the challenges that women specifically, because you've got to look at the entire land reform program as a very gendered uh, program, so that works in ways that marginalise systematically uh, women and disabled people and other. Um, uh, minorities, uh, particularly black women. So if you look at that as a, as a gendered program, so in other words, you are conscious about the, the embedded um, 
systematic injustice in in the program. So in other words, simply because a program is intended, you know, as an instrument of liberation, you know, it doesn't mean it is truly liberatory, you know, because there are fault lines inside that program that need interrogation. So that's one point. The second point is access to credit. You know, uh, finance institutions also discriminate uh, on race and on gender. And the disproportionate burden uh, uh, of that discrimination is experienced by women. We see that, that in fact, it's possible to think differently if you are a finance institution or like a bank about what to do, for instance, with people with no other forms of assets other than cattle or people with no registered title but who live in communal land. That, in fact, it's not them who must change because what banks usually tell us is that you must get a title. In other words, you must change your life. You know, um, but often, but what we get from that story is that it's not often that we must change. The banks must change their policies. Mm-hmm. And the third point is that women are not waiting for us to liberate them. They are, in fact, doing it for themselves. They are working on their own projects, bottom up. And they are putting the food on the table. And so they are not waiting for the government to to liberate them. And it might be helpful uh, for government to think in a much more modest way, Mm -hmm. uh, in a much more humble way. This idea that we will come in from the top and liberate all of you is sometimes a distorted idea on its own. So what we learn from that story is that perhaps helping local projects that have been self-initiated by women might also be part of, not the full answer, but it might be part uh, of the answer. So yes, then on the larger point, which is the continuities uh, of empire, in ways in which the the, the system that the British set up continue disguised in legal systems that we say are established by us in order to fast forward the process of liberation. I think what I'm trying to say there is that we should be conscious of how these uh, inherited uh, systems of apartheid and colonialism continue to shape uh, the ways in which we live and in that sense distort our true liberation. So it's this consciousness that I feel sometimes is lacking. And the other thing to say about this is that you know, the, I had a debate, uh, I think, two or three weeks ago at Stellenbosch University, um, organized by Professor Tuli Matonza. I, I went there to speak about customary law. Mm. But we had, we also heard from chiefs. You know, there are chiefs who believe that they own the land, that the land in the villages is owned by them. Mm. Now, that belief is grounded on historical distortions. It, it, it's, they say that the custom is that the land is owned by the chiefs. So one of the points that have to be made about that is that it's true that that is what was written in the code of Zulu law. It's true that what was written in the subsequent uh, uh, instruments that purported to codify customary law. But it was a distortion. It was a way of control. It was a way of creating a bifurcated state of enabling the British system to control the lives of native people through the use of government-appointed chiefs. And so we should be appending the distortion rather than entrenching it. Mm. One of the fears I have, even when new legislation is drafted, new legislation, it's not decolonial, it's not anti-colonial. 
it's it perpetuates. It's, the only difference is that it's drafted by us, mm-hmm. but in its ethos, it's not decolonial. So in that sense, the, the book is an attempt to make us aware how the current legislative system can mask the continuation of these colonial ideas. Yes. Just like, for instance, who owns the land in the uh, villages. Mm, and um, the Ngonyama Trust case uh, and the judgment that yes. was handed down there in that particular case, uh, I think, goes in some ways to set that record straight. Yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, yes, I'm glad you've raised this point about the, the impact of that judgment because it is a fascinating read. Uh, I would invite a lot of people to check it out. It's it's on the website. It's on the Internet, rather. Now, the, what had happened in that case is that a law was passed in 1993, uh, the Ingonyama Trust Act. I mean, there are political dynamics about it as to whether yes. or not it was simply intended to pacify the uh, Forget about that. You look at the content of what the law is. It made Ingonyama, the king of the Zulus, a trustee over all that land. But it gave them expansive powers uh, together with Amakos, expansive powers over that land. And what they did uh, some 10 years ago, they began a project of converting permissions to occupy PTOs. Now, those who don't know the PTOs, the PTOs were made law in 1969. And that was because the apartheid government didn't want to give black people the title. And so instead, they gave them this piece of paper called PTO. So if you go to the villages, many people have got permissions to occupy. But once you got a PTO, you could exercise it in perpetuity. That was a clear, real right. So these PTOs were then discontinued about 10 years ago by the Ingonyama Trust and then replaced with leasehold. Right. So instead of having a PTO, you become a tenant. You pay rent and if you breach the terms of the rental, it will be kicked out of the land. Yeah. And a lot of women, that case was brought by women, and a lot of women who wanted to do this conversion were simply um, marginalized on the basis that the trust, or at least the chiefs that were administering the uh, program, would only recognize the men in the family. So you show up there, you say, well, my husband is dead, I'm a widow. And they will say to you, well, Bring your uncle. Hmm. Well, I don't have. Uh, well, bring his brother. Well, I don't have. Well, bring your son. Hmm. It's this kind of ridiculousness that we have tolerated. Now, what you then find in court, you find this combination of these distortions. The chiefs on the one hand saying, it's our custom that the land belongs to us. But the people saying, that's not the custom. You are only trustees, nominal owners on our behalf. Hmm. Now, the court ultimately comes on the side of the people. It makes two crucial points. One point is the communal land, now there's the communal space, grazing, unallocated, is communal. It's owned by the people. The chief's role is trusteeship. It's administrative. But that administration cannot be against the interests of the people. The second point is once a stand has been allotted, once a stand has been allotted to a family, that family holds that stand in perpetuity. So it gives real rights that are not ownership rights, but akin to ownership rights. And it's a true affirmation of customary law. And in fact, the judgment says it's the customary law that they are enforcing. And it's beginning to roll back all of the distortions. Mm, mm. No, uh, it goes quite a long way. Uh, But let's bring the present day into our conversation now. I was mentioning earlier that 
Uh, Friday, we saw steps, of course, to adopt a bill to amend the Constitution to allow expropriation without compensation. You devote a whole chapter around um, and asking, is constitutional amendment a panacea? But seeing as we are here, you know, the last time we spoke um, in what we called our part one and so on, uh, it was clear that you're absolutely a, a passionate advocate for land reform and you outlined which parts of the law needed reform, but you also reject the need to change the constitution but if we set that aside looking at what the ad hoc committee has now put together uh, as part of this amendment do you think that it will be oh a good worthwhile um, amendment that will go a long way in um, kind of giving solution to what is feared, the confusion that some say exists in the Constitution, um, and of course in, 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 uh, in allowing the state to restore that which has been taken? No, I don't think so. And I will explain why. The engine for land reform is in three parts of Section 25. It's the part that deals with equitable access. That is Section 25.5. It's the part that deals with restitution, that is section 25.6. And it's the part that deals with security of tenure, that is section 25.7. That's the engine for land reform. That's where we must look for reforms. In other words, for making people that have no access to land to get access to land. We look at those three sections. The debate about the amendment has been on section 25.2b. It's about how the state acquires the land and how much it should pay, if it should pay at all. Yes. Every study that has been done, you know, the President Ramaphosa, when he began his presidency, said he was going to be an evidence-based uh, uh, government. Every study that has been done on land reform has not identified compensation as a problem for land reform. We pay too much for land. We shouldn't be. Hmm. The reason we pay too much for land is because the state adopted a policy in 1997 in which it guaranteed what it called the market-based compensation system, willing seller, willing buyer. But that was a deliberate decision of the state, which has nothing to do with the Constitution. Otherwise, the state has been acting unconstitutionally for the past 25 years. So to think about amending a section that deals with compensation when compensation doesn't play a significant role in land reform, it plays a very marginal role. It's not going to actually resolve the problem of how should black people get access to the land. The second point that the ANC has now adopted is this idea of state uh, ownership, ownership or state custodians. Mm-hmm. Now, as you can see, or, or at least as you can hear, it's state ownership and state custodianship. It's not people ownership. It's not people custodianship. So in other words, it's the consolidation of power at the top and not the devolution to the bottom. If you want to give people land, you cannot at the same time be talking about giving it to the state. And I'm not here criticizing the ability of the state to manage it. But I'm simply saying that if the historical demand for African people has been one of ownership, taking it and giving it to the state is in fact a distortion of that historical demand. And one can say, I'm not going to affect houses, I'm not going to affect, and then start drawing a lot of exclusions. But once you start those exclusions, you then beg the question, why state custodianship in the first place? Mm -hmm. So the historical demand in places like Soweto, places like Alex, even in the villages, has always been that the land is ours. 
It doesn't mean that the state, the land belongs to the government, but the land is ours. In other words, it belongs to the people. So instead of looking upwards, we should be looking downwards. So the second part that deals with custodianship, again, doesn't facilitate. It, in fact, may set the conditions for blocking uh, ownership to the people. Custodianship is fine if it's temporary and transitional. Mm. And custodianship is fine if it's restricted to certain forms of land. But black people who, for the first time, are getting the experience of a title. Think about this, Azani. Many, many African people had no right to title since 1863. No right to title in the transfer since 1871. These were Kruger's laws. You couldn't get a title as a black person. Finally, your government says you can get a title. But before you get that title, they say actually the title will be given to the state. Mm -hmm. Think about that betrayal of the historical mission of the struggle. Mm. Yeah, because point. Yes, go ahead. Yes, yeah. So I'm going to make the third point, which is related to this this, uh, amendment. So, and then on the third part of the amendment, which is let's scrap the 1913 uh, cutoff date and then let's think about another arbitrary day. So there is now a new date, which is January 1800. It is a wholly arbitrary date. It's not linked to anything because you could have done this from the 6th of April, 1652, which probably would have made sense because that's when Jan van der Beek arrived. Or you could have done it from March 1820, which is when the 1820 settlers arrived. Or as the ANC did in 1994, you did it on the 19th of June, 1913, which is when the Native Land Act was passed. But the new date is a completely arbitrary date, which is January 1800. And there is no rationale or, or prospect why they've chosen that date. The issue is not the date. The issue is the quality of the evidence available to support the claim. If there is no evidence to support a claim of restitution, yeah. it doesn't matter if you say that you go back to 1700 or 1800. And that has been the problem for the restitution program, is that the restitution program sets up too many barriers to claim the land. It's too many barriers that we have to prove in order to get the land. I'm talking even claims that happened in the, in the 60s under the Group Areas Act. Mm. It's very difficult for black people to lodge those claims because they do not have the evidence. They which is why we have to get a new policy thinking about land. Mm. Most of the land shortages and the land hunger we have in South Africa will not be resolved by a restitutionary program. They will be resolved by a redistributive program. Mm -hmm. We've got to be spending energies on redistribution. We've got to be passing a redistribution act, which is a forward-looking piece of legislation asking us who needs land for what. Mm. So it will still be, let's see uh, how it proceeds through the parliamentary process because the DA and the FF Plus both oppose the bill, um, saying saying that it will have great impact on the economy and the rule of law and food security um, and just pointing fingers at the ANC saying that they resisted the economic impact assessment being conducted. Um, so they will need a two-thirds majority in parliament. So let's see how far this, this uh, process will go. But as you say, once again, it is looking in the wrong area in solving this uh, particular issue. But um, Dr. Matsole Matsekha kind of of makes the point that they were looking at different types or multiple types of ownership, private ownership, state ownership, uh, you know, citizens as tenants of the government, as you were uh, saying a little bit earlier on, cooperative ownership, that this largely is what they wanted to to, uh, afford. 
um, is that even a a, 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 a decent uh, approach? Yes, I, I think this is part of the problem. I mean, in that sentence, you know, you've illustrated the problem, you know, so you've got five things that you're looking at and mm-hmm. you don't have the most immediate thing that you are looking So what we know, I mean, there are two things that, that they should be doing now, right? Firstly, there are claims that were lodged in 1998 with the first cutoff date, the restitution claims. We know the number. There's around 5,000 of them. They should be settling those claims, paying the people, alternatively giving them the land. Mm. Then we've got 22,000 labor tenant claims. Though the cutoff date for that was in 2013. We know who they are. We know where they are. And we know how much they claim. They should be settling those claims as well. So we have a scenario in which the claims that are currently pending are not being resolved. And what we are being told is more promises. Mm. And they also know that what they should be doing about places like Ingonyama Trust. The key thing now in Ingonyama Trust is how to return to the PTO system. They should be enforcing and implementing that. So we've got to be thinking more, less rhetorically and mm. more practically. And I think that's a powerful note to end things off on. It's it's getting even more... Um there's a lot more at stake. There is every time I, at least for me, every time I engage with this issue, you get to see exactly uh, how much is at stake. And then the road to correcting that just seems to wind and wind and wind. Uh, and yet it's just so important. So it's a contradiction. It's a very complex place to, to be in when you see on the one hand exactly how important this is. Uh, and then on the other hand, not seeing a clear path, uh, being led by our lawmakers in South Africa. Advocate, thank you very much. I really want to thank you for um, affording us your time today to be able to get into this part two. And of course, uh, for your help in understanding where we are currently with this proposed amendment. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation. Uh, it was a pleasure as always. Thank you. That was uh, Advocate Tembegang Mugaitobi. Do read the book. I think it should be on every home's bookshelf. Land Matters, South Africa's Failed Land Reforms and uh, The Road Ahead. And it's precisely that road ahead which remains in question as our uh, parliamentarians look to make changes to our constitution. Uh, one of you says, very impo- informative. Um, can he perhaps lead one of the political parties? I will definitely vote for him. That's the view of one of our listeners on WhatsApp. You will find the first one as a podcast on 702.co.za. And this is the second one, just uh, drilling down into the place of women and the uh, how land rights, um, how we relate to land rights and how the state has managed this particular area.